do in the winter. And it's better to have a pair of shorts and a t-shirt on and be out at the beach in your swimsuit than it is to be locked in the house because it's 20 below and there's ice outside and ice equates to falls and the older I get the more I want to stay away from falls so I'm kind of picking summer now as my new favorite season and a joy but also what's exciting about this summer is we of course we start a new sermon series beginning today and it's going to be let me ask this first how many of you like hymns is there any any, any hymn singers in here I think modern church, we've lost a lot of our culture when we, when we lost singing some good old hymns, and you kind of see this revival in hymns, they're kind of redoing it to contemporary, but there's a still a part of me, I like singing hymns kind of the way we did a, a, a while back. So I want to be happy to tell you this morning, we're going back to the hymns, we're going to be going back to the original hymn book, and that's the book of Psalms, we'll be in Psalms throughout the entire summer till the fall, till sometime in September probably. So about for the next, I don't know, 14 weeks or so, we'll be in the book of Psalms. But not just scattered out in the book of Psalms, we're going to be in a very specific group of Psalms, which begins in uh, with Psalm 120 and goes through Psalm 134. And it's called the Psalms, or the Songs of Ascent. So we're going to be in Jesus' hymn book, and we're going to be in the Psalms of Ascent, and we're going to begin today in Psalm 120. Now, these particular psalms have, are called Psalms of Ascent because they would have been memorized by the Jewish people, especially the males, and they would have been memorized and sung as the people made a pilgrimage to Jerusalem. You know, it was the law, that, or it was kind of like that was the practice that Jewish males would be required to appear in Jerusalem no matter where they lived, it was a thing to do to appear in Jerusalem three times a year at the major festivals, which would have been Passover, the Festival of Weeks, and the Festival of the Tabernacle. So these songs were a tradition as these men and these families would have been on their way to Jerusalem from various parts of the country to going to the Holy City. And, and of course, Jerusalem was on a mount, so they would have been climbing, and hence why they're called the Psalms of Ascent or the Psalms of Degrees, depending on your, which Bible you're using. But these would have been the tradition as they would be ready to celebrate and to worship with others, and as they flooded the temple grounds to offer sacrifices. Now, we're not going to go to Jerusalem necessarily per se ourselves, but we are going to be on a sort of a pilgrimage this summer. And it's going to be a pilgrimage that we don't really even have to leave the building here or our homes. But what I want us to do is to, through the summer, allow us to see what the Lord's going to do through these psalms in your life. What they're going to point out to us about contemporary life and, and things that we need to see change in our lives and, and how we can be a blessing to others. And so if you have your Bibles this morning, I want you to open your Bibles up and, and turn yourself to, to Psalm 120. The first of the Psalms of Ascent, and the first in our series called the Songs of Ascent. Now, we don't know who wrote this particular psalm, Psalm 120, but it is an ascent psalm, and it talks about the experience of a believer in Israel who's far, far away from home. Now, it may be that the first personal pronoun here, he talks about I, we're going to get into that, he talks about, he uses I over and over again, was him the individual. But some commentators believe it could be that the I is representing all of Israel, all of believers. So 
I, for, where I land in this is I believe it's, this is an intensely personal psalm. And so I therefore believe this psalmist is speaking about his experience. He's lamenting over his experience. So that personal pronoun means I, means him, the individual. But whatever the case, whether you believe it's intensely personal or you believe it's corporately for Israel, the psalmist provides for us as he was on his way to Jerusalem for a festival to take his sacrifices, to glorify God, to, to confess his sins before God and to pay the debt for those in the word of, in, 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 in before the Lord. We see that he's got a burden, a burden on his heart. So what I want to do before we get started is I'm going to pray for us, and then I'll read Psalm 120. I ask you to follow along with me. And so if you would, for those of you that, that can stand, I ask you to please stand in the honor and the reading of God's holy, inerrant, infallible word this morning. And if you can't stand, then I ask you to prepare your hearts that, well, though you might physically stand, that in your heart you're standing in honor of God's word. Gracious Heavenly Father, we come to you this morning. For I am a sinful man, I'm among a sinful people. But you are a holy and righteous and just God. And it is so good of you this morning, as Jeremy spoke this morning, to allow us to gather together here this morning and to be able to read your word together, to be able to pray together, to be able to sing together, to be able to worship together, Lord, to refresh ourselves in all the things of Christ, our Lord and our God. So this morning, Lord, I ask you to bless this time of reading your word, to bless this time of the preaching of your word. And I ask, Holy Spirit, that you would change our hearts, increasing our love for Christ and therefore our obedience to Christ. Because we know that, Lord, your will is that we be conformed to the image of the Son. And so that's my prayer, Lord, that we leave here looking more like Jesus in the world and looking less like ourselves. So, Lord Jesus, we pray that you would be glorified, that you would be magnified, that you would be worshipped and praised, and all of God's people said, Amen. Psalm 120, a song of ascents. And the psalmist writes this, he says, In my distress, I call to the Lord, and he answered me. Deliver me, O Lord, from lying lips and a deceitful tongue. What shall be given to you, and what more shall be done to you, you deceitful tongue? A warrior's arrows with glowing coals of the broom tree? Woe to me that I dwell in Meshach and that I dwell among the tents of Kedar. Too long I have had my dwelling among those who hate peace. I am for peace, but when I speak, they are for war. You may be seated. Have you ever been like a long, long way from home? And maybe while you're away from home, you were in a time of considerable stress? What was the first thing you wanted to do? I can remember when I was a, a, a young boy, uh, I had just turned 13 years of age, and I was transitioning from, well, we used to call it junior high back in the day. Now they call it the middle school age. I was leaving seventh grade and going into eighth grade, 
and I went to a high school, as I told you before a few weeks ago, that it was a military high school, it was a smaller school. So when you were in the eighth, when you were moving into the eighth grade, you could join the football team. And they had a JV and they had the varsity team. And sometimes JV had to play varsity because we were a smaller school, not a large public school. And so therefore, when I was, when I was immediately, for, oh yeah, I want to join the football team. So here's how you join. Well, it started off, you went to summer camp with the football team. Now this would have been the first time I was ever away from home. So I was a 13-year-old kid, first time ever leaving home, going away with about uh, 80 young, young, you know, other high school age guys. And if you're a young high school age guy that nobody really knows and you're with a group of high school age guys, you know, guys, that you're going to be the target, right? You are the target. Back then, hazing wasn't necessarily a bad thing. Hazing was considered your right of initiation. So immediately, as soon as the bus door closes and we get on our way to America's Georgia, the hazing began. And there was about six of us guys that were the young guys. Fortunately for me, I was kind of the bigger of those guys, so my, some of my taunting and some of the hazing I got was not as severe. But yet I knew that I was in a, a foreign land at that time among a foreign people who were out to get me in many ways. And that was a very hard time. It was a very difficult time. And that's kind of where this psalmist is this morning. He, he's kind of, he, he's, he's among a people who aren't necessarily for him, and in fact are very different from him. He's dwelling a long way from Jerusalem, and he's a long way from the people of God, and things are very hard there. And from the psalm, we can read that he's being slandered. He's the victim of being bullied, as we would call it today. It's like everybody wants to just argue and be at odds with him. And this psalmist begins to think this. He said, you know, he's thinking, if I could just make it to worship with the people of God in Jerusalem, maybe I could make it. And it's appropriate that the Psalms of Ascent begins with this psalm because it is sharply personal. Because there's going to be something in this for every one of us in here this morning. For every one of us individually and every one of us together, because as we see that the context that he's in right now the con is the context that most of us in here today find ourselves in today. And I'm glad to say God points us in a direction. Jesus is pointing us in a direction in how to deal with this. Because it's not really so much us dealing with it as as much as Christ in us dealing with these things and showing us how to push back when it seems like everybody is against us. But there's a lot of homesickness in this that I hear in this. And so Psalms 120, and I entitled this sermon, Godly Lament. Now, lament's not a word we use a lot today, but it is in a lot, some theological writings today. And so a lament is just simply a crying out, a wailing a kind of grieving that's public and that it's loud, okay? And so this psalmist has provided this lament for us. We see that laments are throughout the Bible. In fact, there's an entire book called Lamentations, which is Jeremiah's lament. He's laying lament out for the church. And there's a way to do lament wrong, and there's, but there's a much greater way of doing lament correctly. 
we're all going to grieve. We're all going to have to cry out at times or at seasons in our life. I think about the loss of loved ones. You think about the loss of, of jobs. You think about struggles that we as, as, as Christians face in the day-to-day, the, the, the culture. We, 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 we should lament, but we should lament correctly. And there's a way of responding that makes lament, that makes grieving a very godly thing for us. We don't grieve and we don't lament as those who are without hope. No, we have hope in Christ Jesus. So when we lament, when we grieve, we're doing so with with hope in our hearts. But these times can be very painful for us. When you feel like you're so depressed, you can't get out of bed, or you're so anxious, you can't leave the home. Or you're in such pain that the next movement makes you just want to end it all. And that causes many people great distress and many believers. But we have hope. It's not like the pain's the end. It's not like the grieving's the end. No, Christ is the fulfillment of all. And it's in Christ that we hope, church. So it's okay. But what you're going to see over these psalms over the next few weeks is you're going to see you, 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 you're going to see a lot of celebration. You're going to see a lot of declaring trust in God. You're going to see lament. You're going to see cries for help. And church, these psalms are going to teach us some things on how to deal with the world as we see it today. So although vacation time is times that we're not in church and sometimes in the summer we want to leave church, let me tell you, you're going to want to stick around for this. You're going to want to stick around and catch these sermons. So there are three things I want us to point out, three things for us to do about godly lament. And I want us to see this, what this psalm teaches us about praying, what it teaches us about trusting God, and what it teaches us about dwelling among a foreign people before the face of God. Dwelling among a foreign people among the face of God. So let's begin in verse 1. Looking at verse 1, the psalmist writes, In my distress I call to the Lord. And so the psalmist here is reminding us that believers can count on the Lord hearing them when they cry out. Hey, church, when you pray, God hears you. Let me say it again. Church, when you pray, no matter how feeble you think your prayer is, no matter how bad you are praying, when you come before the Lord, you're a believer, you come before the Lord, whether you're laying prostrate in your prayer closet at home, whether you're gathered here in a pew or in a room with, uh, with a group of others for the sole sake of praying for the worship service, the church community, hey, God hears you. Now, I don't know, but that's an amen kind of thing for me. This is a very astounding thing that here is the creator and author of the universe who spoke and all things are who came and put on flesh for us and died on a cross so that he could satisfy his righteous requirement of his law for us so that now those who believe in Christ Jesus the Lord can be saved and have relationship with him? Amen, church! Why do, you, why do we lay around like victims all the time? Why do we act like victims? Well, we're victorious in Christ Jesus. And so the psalmist says, I cried to the Lord, and he the Lord heard me. Now, I don't know about you, but to me, that's just an awesome thought. It's an awesome thought that God hears me when I cry before him. And so praying is a very powerful thing. It's a very, it's a very paradigm 
changing thought that when I pray and I cry to the Lord, that he hears me. And though we shouldn't only cry out to the Lord when we're distressed, we should cry out to the Lord all the time, right? Prayer, church, should be a regular part of our lives. In fact, Paul would say, hey, pray without ceasing. So prayer should be a regular thing that happens regularly throughout your day and up to the point, because the last thing I do, I don't know about you, but even as a, as a, as a child, I was taught, hey, you say your prayers at night before you go to bed, right? So usually the last thing I do is pray. It's always right to call out to the Lord, but it's always especially right to call out to the Lord in times of distress. And the psalmist shows us this. In my distress, I called to the Lord, he says, and he answered me. I needed him. I prayed to him. I cried out to him in prayer, and he answered me. An old pastor, and I'm talking old, about 300, 350, 400 years ago, so he's old. You know, I can say that. Men, he says this, men have need of God's help at every moment. There's not a moment we don't need God's help. But there is not a more suitable season for seeking the Lord than when some great danger is immediately menacing us. So, church, though we ought to always to pray, though we ought to always not only pray in times of distress, but we certainly should pray in times of distress, and we should call out to the Lord, and He will hear us in those times. And that's the first thing we learn about this psalm in the very first verse, part of the verse there. Call out to the Lord, He answered me. But I want you to notice again these words here in verse 1. It says here, I call in my distress, in my struggle, in my hurt, in my pain, I call to the Lord. And he answered me. Now, here's the thing. What this psalmist is experiencing here right now, I want to tell you this. He's there by the sovereign design of God. He's not there in this situation by some accident, he's in this situation because of the sovereignty of God. You know, the Lord often puts us into circumstances where the only thing we can possibly do is pray. Sometimes you're dealing with a spouse whose heart is hard toward a certain issue. Or you might be dealing with a child who you feel has just gone off the rails. Maybe it's your job, it's gone sideways and it's not what you originally set out to happen maybe you go to the doctor and you get that diagnosis that you hadn't ever wanted to hear but sometimes God puts us in situations like this where the only thing for us to do is pray because we know that we're powerless in those circumstances and that's why he puts us there he has us exactly where he wants us the Lord sometimes uses these situations in our life where all we can do is pray, all we can do is depend on Him because He's the only one that can make these changes. I can't change your heart. You know what I'd like to see in here this morning? I'd like to see revival happen in here this morning. I'd like to see it break out among everyone in here. I'd like to see you get up and sing with vigor and with a lust for the Lord, not a lust for the world. I'd like to see you this morning just fall down on our faces and that we as a congregation would plead to the Lord for the salvation of this city. For the salvation of our convention, which will be meeting in just another week or so. And that we would see a people return to the Lord. Church, we need to be a people of prayer. 
That only happens when people pray. Why? Because the Lord, He answers us. He answers that prayer. And sometimes God puts us in situations like this to teach us some things about who He is. All right? So let me tell you this morning, your hope is not just in the act that you pray. Okay? The act that you pray is a good thing. I want you to pray. I want you to pray more. I want you to pray more vigorously. But it's not in our activity of praying, but in who God is. That's where our hope is. And our hope is not just in our doing, but it's in God's doing. So who God is and what God has done, that's where our hope is. And so we pray. Not just to change situations, but hey, it's more about changing us in those situations, isn't it? When we pray that God would shape us, would change us, would sanctify us, the Bible would say, to make us more into the image of His Son. So I want you to remember that when we pray, we're always dependent upon the Lord. But especially when He kicks the legs out from under the chair that we're sitting on, can we be especially aware of our dependency upon Him? And all we can do is cry out to the Lord. So here are the first two great messages I want you to learn from this psalmist. In my distress, I called to the Lord, and He answered me. And it's a good thing, church. It's a good thing. So here's Pine Summit, here's what, or Christ the King, here's what we can do. You need to pray. You need to pray with a heart that's humble before the Lord. You need to pray throughout the day. You need to pray that God, that Christ in, would be glorified in our lives and the way we respond both corporately as a church and individually as the people of God coming together. But this psalm also teaches us, and this is my next point, also teaches us about trusting God. Martin Luther, in his commentary on this psalm, points out that the trial of this psalmist is facing in 120 here is not the, the trial of torment. It is not that he's being physically persecuted by those who surround him, but it is a trial of the tongue. It is a trial of deceitfulness. It's what's being said about the psalmist that's causing him this trouble. And this delivers for us verse 2. As the psalmist cries out, look at verse 2 with me. The psalmist writes, Deliver me, O Lord, from lying lips and a deceitful tongue. And you know, one of the most common difficulties that we can undergo as believers is the trial of being slandered against or having false accusations. And the psalmist here is speaking about the trouble that he's had from the deceitfulness of those around him. And it reminds us that even the person of the purest character is not immune from being slandered or being talked bad about, right? In fact, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, he was slandered. Though he was of the purest character and had had infinite integrity, yet he was slandered. And the psalmist here is experiencing something faintly similar in that he says, O Lord, Deliver me from lying lips and a deceitful tongue. Now, I can relate to this. You know, recently, uh, in, in, in right about the 1st of February, I started a new job working at Lakeview Center. And uh, uh, shortly after I started working there as a nurse before, I became the nurse manager. Joke was on them, right? And uh, I became the nurse manager and I had one of the, the lead therapists come in and wanted to talk. Now, 
Now, I want to remind you, the way this, this lead therapist described himself to me was, well, you know, yes, well, I am a lesbian, Wiccan, uh, Buddhist. And, she, you know, she's got tattoos that show me she's got, you know, a big Buddha up her arm here. She's got some other little things there. And I go, okay, wow. I said, that certainly says a lot. And my mind was trying to process all these descriptions that she had given to me. And I just go, well, you, uh, I'm, I'm a Christian, for whatever that's worth. And so it was a few days later, she came to my office, and she began to speak some things. And she's standing in the doorway of my office. Uh, and she begins talking about some things, and uh, about some reality. And I said, well, you know, uh, I, I just tell people the truth. I think we need to tell people the truth here. Because you've got you to know where I'm at. It's a locked unit. We have about 20, 20 who are long-term have severe, persistent mental illness, and a lot of them have a lot of false beliefs. Now, the first thing you're taught in, in psychiatry or you're taught is you don't feed people's delusions, right? You've got to see, no, I, I, I hear you. I believe that you believe that, but here's the truth, or here's what I see, right? And so you don't want to feed their false beliefs. So immediately I tell them, I, I just prefer to tell them the truth. I don't need to tell them that. And then she quickly, all of a sudden, the tone in her voice changed. It changed pretty dramatically. Now, remind you, this person who describes themselves as a lesbian Wiccan Buddhist, and I, I don't know, if you can bring all that together in your mind, let me know. I'm still trying to figure it out, but I don't know. Because you can't do that. I go, what do you mean I can't do that? I can do that. Now, you might not like it. Lakeview might not even like me telling people the truth. But we don't feed into people's delusions. And there is a truth that everyone needs to be grounded in. And that's ultimately God's truth. Now, does that mean I go out there and sling gospel verses on them every day? No. But what it does mean is I do try to ground them, not in their mental illness, but I try to ground them in who God is and what God has done. Because the way they view the world is very twisted. And the way she's going, you can't do that. We don't do that here. We don't, you can't attack people like that. And I go, whoa, you just changed language on me. I said I tell people the truth. I'm just being honest with people. You said I'm attacking people that way. So for the next several days, now it's about I'm a hateful trying to attack all of her patients. Slander against me. She took the entire thing, but she couldn't refute what I was trying to, you know, she, I was laying the cards down, and she just couldn't take, she couldn't deal with it. That was her problem. There's not a patient on that unit that has complained about me. There's not another immediate co-worker that's complained about me. But you know what? Even regardless, that's who I am. Church, that's who you are. There is a truth that we are to be grounded in and rooted in. And there's a truth that we need to share with the world. And I don't, you know, whatever, we got to stand for truth, right? Didn't, didn't Paul write something about the church being the pillar and the buttress of truth? We stand for the truth. Jesus says, hey, I am the way, I am the truth. And Jesus' people, therefore, ground themselves in the truth. And that truth is the way we view the world, it's the way we view politics, it's the way we view our rest life, our vacation life, it's the way we view all of life through the truth of Scripture.
And it's amazing today how often believers, maybe you have, people have taken your Christianity, taken things about you, and made false accusations about you. And yet your character, your integrity, your life, and everything about it has been called into question. And the psalmist, in that same way, he's crying out to God at precisely that circumstance. And he's asking God to, to, to help him in this persecution. But as he faces this trial, he doesn't just have the anchor of prayer, because remember, when we're facing this distress, we want to pray. We want to pray when times are good. We want to pray especially when times are bad, because we do pray when times are good. But he doesn't just have prayer to anchor him. He's got another anchor here, and that's trusting in the sovereign providence and justice of God. And so I want us to look at verses 3 and 4 now. And he goes to the next one. What shall be given to you, and what, shall, what more shall be done to you, you deceitful tongue? A warrior's sharp arrows with the glowing coal of the broom tree. Now, here's the Rick Hollis paraphrase of that. What will he do to you, O man, who speaks deceitfully? He will punish you with, sharp, with arrows sharp, with hot coals from the broom tree. So the psalmist here is describing the persecutor, the ones who's, the people who are accusing him, he's, a, he's describing their just reward. This is what the liars are going to get from God. Though, though, hey, you know that old saying, sticks and stones will break your bones, but words will never hurt you? That's a lie. Words do hurt. What people say about you behind your back does hurt you. Right? Even if it's false, it hurts us. It hurts us. So yeah, when those liars, when those false accusers, when they are hurling their insults about you, when they're talking behind your back, maybe they're even saying things to your face, that stuff hurts. But you know what's going to hurt worse? What's going to hurt worse is God's arrows of judgment. It's going to be much sharper than any arrows that we could come up with to the one who's been falsely accusing God's children. And so the psalmist, as he's thinking about this trial, he starts meditating on God's sovereignty. And he starts meditating on God's judgment. And, and, that, and he reminds us that the judgment of the liar, the deceiver, the slander, will be greater than the pain that that liar has caused. A commentator says this. He says, God's coals are hotter and God's arrows are sharper than those who afflict the people of God with the sins of their tongue. And he goes on to say the liar, wounding as his weapons are, will be destroyed with a far more potent shaft than lies, the arrows of God's truth and the coals of his judgment. So the psalmist here says, hey, he begins to meditate on the fact that the one who's speaking bad about him will in fact incur the greater judgment. And so the psalmist meets this trial not only with prayer, but a recognition that this can and does happen to believers, but also with an appeal to God's sovereign and God's sovereignty and his judgment. Here's the thing. Jesus said, if they hated me, they're going to hate you. They spoke bad about Jesus. They lied about him. They slandered. They put false accusations against him. If Jesus is the one we're trying to look like, then you're going to have people say evil, mean, dark things about you. Here's what I can tell you. 
it hurts. It does hurt because you know that's not you. But here's what I can say. We can trust in the Lord that has us in that situation. Anyway, and if we are sharing the truth, if we're spreading the truth, if we're living the truth, then count it worthy. In fact, there's another scripture in there that would say consider it worthy to be able to suffer for Christ's sake. Consider it that you're worthy to suffer for the God of the universe. And it'll only be for a little while. It'll only be for a little while. Because there's coming a day when that God returns. And he returns seated upon a white horse. And he has a sword. And he's coming to bring low every enemy and to bring into control, even put to the end of sin and death. And that's the God we trust in. That's the God we have focused. That's the God who we say, even in the face of these bad circumstances, Christ is the victor. Therefore, because of his victory, I stand victorious. I stand victorious. But the psalmist, really, he says to pray and he says to trust in God's sovereignty, that God will bring about judgment on those who do evil. But he also, this brings us now to verses 5 and 7 as we begin to kind of close out this psalm. And so in verses 5 to 7, the psalmist meditates on really a sojourning, or a, as I said it, a dwelling in a foreign land among a foreign people. But I say dwelling before the face of God. Before the face of God. And here's what he says. He says, Woe to me that I sojourn in Meshach and that I dwell among the tents of Kedar. Now these two places refer to peoples that lived in the area far north of Israel and down, down in the Arabian Peninsula. And Kedar, if you remember, is, is one of the sons of Ishmael, and so they are the Arabian cousins of Israel down in the deep south. So it may be what the psalmist is trying to point to, not so much location as much as to the, who these people groups are that are around this believer. One's a blood relative but hates Israel, or is at least at enmity with Israel, and the other are complete Gentile pagans. And he's describing having to live outside of the contacts of the people of God and, and a, being far away from the people of God. Now, isn't that how most of us are? Let, let's be honest. Now, Pensacola, Escambia County, anywhere for the most part in the South, you should consider it to be a fairly safe place, right? For Christians. I mean, we're in the Bible Belt, supposedly. And so it should be a safe place for us, mostly. And, and, and really, it is. But have you been looking at the news? Have you been paying attention to what's going on at work? Have you encountered any lesbian, Wiccan, dadgum Buddhist in, in your workplaces or in your neighborhoods? Because what you'll see is there's a growing belief in these things. And why is that? Because the people of God have not concerned themselves with the things of God and knowing God being in the Scriptures as we should have. Okay? We've missed the mark. All right? We've missed the mark. And that's not going to change, as I said, until we begin to really see a revival, especially among the Southern Baptists, as to what's important and what's not important. 
But when you go to work, when you go to play, when you go to the playground, as we begin to see things about, and, and we begin to see things like, well, there's, there's, this, there's this dude with a beard, but he's got a dress and makeup on, and we go, that's not true. That's a lie. When we see people saying about love is love, and it's like that meme that's going on Twitter. Well, that's like saying water is water. We go drink out of a toilet, right? And then you find out water is not really water, is it? Just like you'll find out that love is not love. There is, a, there is a love that God has ordained for men and women and between brothers, a brotherly love, phileo, and, and there's a right type of love, and then there's a love that does not honor God who is the author of love, who himself is very loved, so he himself can say through Scripture what love is and what love rightly oriented means. And church, we've got to be biblically grounded. There's not a person in here who calls themselves a Christian that should not be able to defend godly marriage. There's no such thing as gay marriage. It doesn't exist. Hey, I work with a guy, all right? He's one of my nurses. And he, he, he tells me, he says, oh, well, uh, you know, my husband. You don't have a husband. The state does not tell us what a husband is, what a wife is. The scriptures describe that for us. The scriptures, God himself just says a woman, that's a female, that's someone who can give birth, and that's only one sex that can do that, all right? And it's between a female and a male, right? And there's no other. Now, I don't know what you call what you're doing. I mean, you, you, you can say civil union. You can say all these things. But we've got to be people of truth, right? We've got to be grounded in this. In church, we need to be able to defend this and defend it. And we need to speak it lovingly. And when you speak truth, you don't have to defend truth. I mean, you don't have to go to blows with them over any of this stuff. It's, it's God's truth. I'm just going to lay this right here. Boom. And you can deal with it. I don't have to. I've, God's already dealt with me over this. That's what I repented of my sin and trusted Christ as L-O-R-D. Lord. Sovereign. He gets to say what's right. He gets to say what's wrong. And therefore, I fall into that camp. That's who we are as believers. We don't have to be mean about it. We don't have to be flippant about it. We just have to be able to admit it. Now, Paul and I, we're, we're buddies. But he's, he's in error. He doesn't have a husband. He doesn't. And you know, you know what the strange fact is? Even though Paul chants and he does yoga and stuff like that too, and he meditates, and he calls himself, Paul still identifies himself as a Christian. Paul, what's the basis of your theology? Well, my feelings. Oh, you mean like the heartburn I had last night? It was there, it kept me up all night long because I struggled with it, now it's gone, my feeling has changed? Your feelings change, people. We don't, we don't ground ourselves in our feelings. You know what happens to us when we ground ourselves in the, in the, the Bible describes us as being like a reed in the wind blowing back and forth. Whichever the wind blows, that's where we go. No, you root yourself in God's truth. You root yourself there. It doesn't bend. It doesn't change. It's truth. God presented it to you. Now you've got to believe it, and we reconcile ourselves to it, right? 
And so this psalmist, he's burdened, man. He's been praying. He recognizes he's being assaulted, but he's trusting in God's providence. And he, he, he's dwelling among all these pagans who don't believe like him and don't. And we can identify with that. But he says, look at verses 6 and 7. Too long I've had a dwelling place among those who hate peace. And he says, I'm for peace. But when I speak, they are for war. And so the psalmist, in other words, is saying, it's not just that I dwell apart from God's people and in the midst of a predominantly pagan culture. It is, even though I am for peace, they are for war. Now, last weekend, and then uh, a week before that, you know, you, you have the little arts thing downtown on Friday nights. Nice, people love, tell me how great it is. And then, you know, they had a product where they were celebrating homosexuality, something expressly forbidden in God's Word. They are celebrating evil. Then we, last weekend, we, we have the big gathering of homosexuals at Pensacola Beach. Look, it's common. It's coming. You're going to see this more and more. I mean, think about 10 years ago how this was, and think about it now. It's only growing. It's coming. But the people of God have to rise up. And regardless, we've got to speak. Now, I don't know what your end times view is. Some of you may view that, well, it's just going to get worse and worse, and God, Jesus is going to rapture us, and then the tribulation, and, but I'll be out of it, and then Jesus is going to reign for a 1,000 years, and that may be. Some of you believe maybe post-millennial, and you may be thinking, okay, well, yes, but hey, the church, God's going to grant us, he's going to grant us a lot of special vision, the, the church is going to preach the gospel, we're going to conform the culture, and so almost everybody will be converted to Christianity, will all our Christ, and then Christ returns. And there are those of us who, well, that first hand, it looks kind of like that, and then there's others of us who say, well, it kind of looks like, yeah, the church, you know, or Christ representative on earth, but there's some of us who say, well, we don't believe in a millennium at all. We believe we're in the millennium. We believe now that Christ reigns among his people and that when, when the rapture comes, that's because Jesus has returned. He's taken his church out of the way and he's squashing all of his enemies. But wherever you fall in that, the desire should be to, 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 to preach the gospel to all people so that all could be saved. And what we have to recognize is there are going to be people who are not going to be saved. They're going to reject God's truth. There are people that rejected God himself when he was a man here on earth. The religious leaders, they rejected him. They taunted him. They murdered him. Right? What makes you think they're not going to do the same to you? They will do the same to you. They will. Because they're not, they're not the children of God. They're the children of wrath. They're the children of Satan. And so when he says, for too long I've had a dwelling place among those who hate peace, I'm for peace. But when I speak, they are for war. So the psalmist is saying, it's not that I shall dwell apart. I'm dwelling in this pagan culture. And he goes on to say, hey, I want the well-being of these pagans among who I live. I don't want to hurt anybody. Just like you, we don't want to hurt people. We're not out to injure people. I want to be a good witness to God. I want to work for the best interest, and I want to see. A, I want to have a testimony that I love and serve the God of the Bible, the Lord Jesus Christ. But they're still against me. I say up, they say down. I say peace, they say war. I'm at odds with them, and I feel alone and weary. And it can be a weariness of the soul to dwell among. Hey, I want to tell you something, church. This has got to be us. But you know, we're not alone. 
We're not alone. God hears us. He hears our prayers. He's put His Spirit, the Holy Spirit, within you. He's placed you in Christ. So the Holy Spirit's in me. I'm in Christ. And Christ is in the Father. So we're well protected. Didn't Jesus say, don't fear him who can kill the body, but fear him who can kill the body and cast soul into hell. That's the one we fear. That's the one we revere. That's the one that when he says something, we, we got to say, okay, I need to change my heart here. But this is something we got to prepare ourselves for. It's here. It's just not as prominent as it is in maybe some of the bigger places like L.A. Dodger, I mean the, the Dodger Stadium. It's just not prevalent. But it's in the places where you shop. The evilness, the secularness of the culture. It's in the places that we shop, where we go, places that we get our coffee at. Sometimes it's even sitting in the very pews next to you. And what we have to be is we just have to be aware as the people of God, keeping ourselves rooted in the doctrine of God, praying to the Lord, knowing He hears us, trusting in His salvation, knowing that whatever He's done is for the good of those who love Him and are called according to His purpose. We can trust in Him. And it's about having this mindset now and dwelling in the midst of a culture that's not always going to be nice and friendly and Gentile. That's not going to just say, oh, sir, you broke into line at the buffet bar. No, they're just going to ban you from the buffet bar because you're a hated, because you just hate people and you're a bigot and you won't let people be who they need to be. No, I don't want you to be who you're going to be. Look, if Rick was going to be who he's going to be, I'd be much more pitiful than I am now. But I'm not who I'm going to be. It's who God is going to make me into. He says in his word that he's going to conform me to the image of his son. And that is his desire for me, and it's his desire for you, church. And these are good things. I think it's good. How many of you back 20, 30 years ago, I don't, I don't know, maybe I'm just weird like this. But how many of you ever watched the, you know, the stories, the Ten Commandments, and the movies on TV, they used to come on primetime TV, on the networks, and, you know, a lot of these Jesus flicks, and you always pictured yourself as being one of the good guys, right? Yeah. You're, you're Moses standing there with his staff, and you're, you're parting the Red Sea kind of thing, right? Or you're right there with Jesus. You know, you're cutting off the ear of uh, one of the Sanhedrin police or whatever, the temple guard. But you know, the truth is, if we want to know the truth, we're not those. We're the ones, we're, we're the ones sending Jesus to the cross. And the only way that that you get to change that role is when God calls you and you see your sin for what it is, you see who you really are and you recognize the ugliness and the sinfulness and the depravity and that you are broken, deserving only of God's wrath. And God all of a sudden illuminates who Jesus is. He illuminates what Jesus has done for us. You see the cross in a new picture. You see it as the way of salvation and you cry out to Jesus to save you. And when Jesus saves you, he calls you to a new life. He calls you to be a new person. You become new. The old has passed away. Hey, behold, the new has come. Amen? So there's something happening here today that you don't get to do during the week. Because the week, you're probably going to be assailed. In the week, there are probably going to be people speak bad things about you, do bad things to you. You're going to see evil things on the news. 
about what people are doing, and you say, oh, man, I'm glad. No, it's coming. It's here. It's just not quite out in the open. It's not being celebrated as it is in some of these other places, capturing the news, but it's coming. And the people of God have got to be stand up, and we've got to be ready. We've got to prepare ourselves for the days ahead. So what are you? So what are the temptations for us right now? Well, the temptations are either we compromise. You know, hey, I'm just going to go along to get along. You know, I don't want to be quiet. I don't want to draw any attention to myself. Oh, heck, no, I don't want to do that. Oh, yeah. Hey, yeah, as you say to your believing friend, oh, yeah, they're going to get theirs. And then you just go along with the program. That's not what we do, church. If you love people, if you care about people, how's God going to save his people? through his people proclaiming the gospel, sharing the gospel, living out the gospel before a broken world. And you know what? If you're doing that, there's going to be a great contrast between the world and you, right? People are going to see light amidst darkness. People are going to be, they're going to see salt among some bland, tasteless, whatever mush. And it's going to cause you it's going to cause you some discomfort because people are going to see you and they're going to say bad things about you. They may even do bad things to you. You may not get that promotion. You may not get that raise. They may slash the tires on your car. They may call you all sorts of evil things, but friends, so what? Those things rust and go away. So when there are temptations, we don't go along. We don't want to be co-opted by the mindset of this culture, oh, just to be peace and friendly and to be nice, Jesus people. That's not who we are. Our Lord is God, and he's proclaimed the way. And we stand up valiantly, and we proclaim the truth. Because we're people of the truth. And the New Testament reminds us that the right posture for a believer, that a believer is to be salt and light in a dying culture. Salt, the preservative, light refers to the moral quality that distinguishes us from the culture around us. But we do both of these functions. We're salt and we're light. And when we're, and we're seeing salt and light, I, I, I'm going to say this, a great indicator, if you're being persecuted at work, then you're probably doing a pretty doggone good job. But we work for the peace. This, the, the psalmist says, I'm for peace. These other people are for war. I say up, they say down. So we, but we work for the well-being, for the peace. So we love the world without loving the world. We work for the world's well-being. We work for people's well-being, okay, by sharing the truth, by sharing in Christ. But we're not co-opted by the world's agenda, by the world's priorities, by the world's outlook on life, by the world's love for things that are opposed to God's things. We work for Christ and gospel truth to permeate the culture. And if Jesus returns soon and he raptures the church, great. If he waits and allows the church to preach the gospel until the majority of the people in the world are now Christian, fantastic, praise the Lord, amen. And then Jesus returns, or if he's just waiting to come back, just he's going to come back and boom, he draws everything to an end. This world is, oh, boom, believers, he's crushing them, sending them to hell, Believers, he raptures up. New heavens and a new earth come down, all things new, and boom! Believers are enjoying for eternity 
life with God, in light of the glory of God, and we worship. Which brings me back this morning, I was asked, Rick, did you get any feedback for when you got up there the other day and said something bad, said something about people worshiping here? And I go, you know, nobody said anything to me about it, which meant one of two things. Either nobody really thought they were they offended anything, or maybe nobody heard me, but I just got to thinking here. Do you ever consider that your worship here, how well you can worship here in this place with this people? Have you ever considered how maybe this is your time of preparation for the true worship that's going to come when we're with Christ in a place called heaven? Some of you, some of you are not doing too good in your rehearsals. Why? Because I see it on your face. Your faces are sour. They're broken. They're downtrodden. Now, hey, I'm not saying we walk in here all happy and, and jumpy all the time, right? Because we, just like the psalmist, there's hard times, there's trials that come in our life that brings a lot of sadness, it brings a lot of heartbreak. But if we are preparing here, if we're being conformed to the image of the Son, and the only thing we get out of you is this during worship time, there's something wrong. Something wrong with you. Hey, you come in the midst of family. We talk about family. Hey, this, this psalmist is writing about, he wants to be with the people of God. He's ready to get to Jerusalem. He's ready to get to the city. We don't have a Jerusalem, but we got a little place on the corner of Bellevue and community where we gather together. And we don't bring, we don't bring sheep and lambs and bulls in here to cut the throats and splash blood all over the place, but we come in here knowing that we rebel against the Holy God during the week, that we want to confess our sins before our Lord and Savior together. We come in here wanting to gather with friends, people I can be safe with, people I don't have to worry about you maligning me. Or do I? I don't know. But I don't have to worry about people maligning me or want to argue with me about whether they're in a marriage or not in a marriage or what this that, that is. Hey, this is a place where we come and be and we can get refreshed here. And you're going to hear more about this. Hey, I've got two more sermons after this in the next three weeks. I'm happy. I don't know about you, but I'm happy. Hey, I don't want to break you down. I want to build you up. Church I came from, we had this saying, we want to bring them in, we want to build them up, then we want to send them out. But we had bring them in. We didn't do so well at building them up, and we didn't, we didn't do good at sending them out. Unless they were going, oh, I can't take any more of that stuff. I'm out of here. Which is not what we wanted, but it's what happened. So, hey, church, <clears throat> I, I really don't want to beat you up, but I do want you to look at yourselves honestly. In the face, in the light of Jesus Christ and, and in the face of his word, don't bend to this culture. Stand for truth. Raise Christ high. See, this, this psalmist, he couldn't get to Jerusalem where he could worship God. And that should be our attitude in here day after Lord's Day, after Lord's Day, gather together, I'm going to gather with my church. And where the Lord has planted us in our neighborhoods and our community, we should be working for its well-being, bearing witness to the gospel, to be good neighbors to our neighbors, to be good witnesses of Jesus Christ in our community, to serve in our jobs and in our schools with all of our hearts and all of our might, to give glory to God in everything we do. And yes, that can sometimes wear you slap out. So where do we go for refreshment? We gather with the people of God for the worshiping of God. We take on the Lord God's word, and he shows us how to live 
as, a, as maybe a persecuted people in a pagan land. And so the Psalms of Ascent is going to have a lot to teach us over the next 14 weeks or so. And I'm looking forward to taking in every, every single thing I can learn. Because I need you. I know the Lord's for me, but I need you. And you know what? You're going to need me as well. And we're going to be together. And we're going to walk this thing called life bringing glory to Jesus. And I bring this psalm as most appropriate as we see the heart of this psalmist. And this psalmist, he's preparing to go worship the Lord as he talks about what's going on around and we can relate to that. We can relate to that. Now, for those of you in here who are Christ followers, we just need to take God's word exactly for what it says and we need to be ready. You may have to fight. And yeah, sometimes you may have to physically fight. It may get down to that. I don't know. I'm just saying be prepared. Jesus said, hey, be prepared. I'm telling you, be prepared. Root yourself in the truth of God and be willing to stand for something. Be willing to stand for truth. Be willing to know that when we stand for what God has said, for what he he calls his people to be, God's going to honor that. Now, we don't do it to hurt people. No, we want their well-being, right? Right. We want to love people. But loving people is not lying to people. It's not. And when you tell the truth, the world's going to take notice. Some of the world is going to want to fight you, but some of the world is waiting to hear that truth, the truth of Christ. They're waiting to hear it. Have you ever thought about this? That God's going to use me this week when I preach the gospel, that God's going to use me in some way that he's going to draw this person to Christ and he's going to save him because of the words I spoke or because of the action I did? If you're not thinking that, stop it. You should be thinking that because God uses me and you to draw people to himself. You're important, church. And what we need to start doing is we need to recognize that and we need to stand up and be bold for the truth of Christ. Amen? Now, if you are in here and if you, you know, you're not sure about this whole Jesus thing, in fact, if I ask you, well, who are you? You'd want to tell me something like that therapist tells me. Oh, you know, I'm just a, I'm just a lesbian, whatever, whatever then I would tell you, let me tell you about Jesus Christ, the Son of God who is God. I would tell you to repent of your sins, repent of who you think you are, and embrace the truth of Scripture of who God says we actually are, or who can be. I would say repent and trust Christ. And you're surrounded by a group of people here who can tell you exactly, walk you through Scriptures, to show you who God is, what God has done, specifically in the person of Christ, who you are, and now what needs to happen. You can come and you can, you can gather with us and regularly hear gospel preaching, gospel teaching in our missional communities, in our worship gatherings, where we gather together and hear these things. Think about these things and take them into your heart. But the answer for you is to trust Christ, repenting of your sins, confessing Him as Lord, and now living for His glory. 
And here's what we're going to do in response, church. In response, we're going to gather at the Lord's table and we're going to eat. Now, this table is only for those who are professed the faith in Christ and have been baptized. Biblically baptized. Publicly baptized. It's your baptism of that public profession of faith of what God has done in your salvation in your heart and in your life. He's made you a new person. And so when we gather at the Lord's table, the Lord says, come and eat of my table. Again, it's a foretaste of the kingdom to come. Right now, we're just feasting on little particles of matzah. We're drinking a little grape juice. But one day, we're going to be seated with Christ at a royal table, and you're going to have the choicest meats and the choicest foods and the choicest wines, and we're going to celebrate and worship like we've never done before. Where do you get that, Rick? Well, just read the scriptures. It's in there. This is a preparation of what's to come. Again, we see the picture here, but it's a small, faint picture of what's actually going to be. But we can rejoice in this picture right now because Jesus says, hey, do this. And remember, I'm coming. I'm coming. So church, if you would, please stand with me because we're told that before we partake of this meal, and I know that most of you are, are Pine Summit people here, are Christ the King people here. And so you know the pattern. All right? As the church comes down to take, partake of the meal, we do it. We come down and get the elements. We take it back to the seat. We move from the outside. We move in back to your seats. <clears throat> so if you're an unbeliever or if you're a new person here, and you are a believer and you're baptized, we welcome you to come join with us. Come partake of this meal, all right? Because this is a meal for Jesus' people. This is a meal for blood-bought Christians. And if you're that person, then we want you to join with us, whether your membership's here or wherever. We want you to come. If you're not a believer, then we want you to refrain from taking the elements. You, you can get up and you can walk with the crowd and you can walk by the table just don't pick up or don't take those elements when they're handed to you. Because those are for the Lord's people to celebrate his meal. Some of you have been in some unconfessed, unrepentant sin. And it's ongoing. And if you're not repenting over that sin and you recognize that sin, I'm going to ask you to refrain from taking this meal. Because you would be dishonoring this meal. You'd be dishonoring the Lord and taking of his meal while you're in unconfessed, unrepentant sin. Plain and simple. Not my rules. Those are Jesus' rules. But I'll be glad to proclaim them. If you have young kids who are not yet baptized, who are not yet believers, bring them up with you, parents. Bring them up. Allow them to see. Allow them to ask questions. And use this as a teaching moment in your family worship as to why, what those elements, that bread, body of Christ, the juice, the wine, the blood of Christ, what that represents, why we hold that sacred. Amen? But Paul says before we partake of this meal, we need, to, we, need to, we, need to, we need not take of it in an unworthy manner. So I'm going to give you a few moments of silence here that I want you to confess your sin to the Lord, and then I'm going to pray.